Good morning, Covenant. We continue with our journey through the story of Joseph. Joseph, at this point in the narrative that we will soon read in a little bit from Genesis 41, Joseph is now 30 years old. It has been 13 years since he was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. He is no longer the brash 17-year-old whose careless chatter annoyed everyone. Earlier in the narrative, we see Joseph in prison. He is serving other prisoners. He's interpreting dreams. The, the guards ask him to care for other prisoners. So we see throughout this journey that Joseph is really undergoing a character transformation, which is what often happens during times of pain and suffering. We saw last week that Joseph carries out his economic program needed to prevent the disaster that Pharaoh's dreams foretell. Joseph now is intelligent and wise without peer in Egypt during the seven years of plenty, more than could actually be measured, was all gathered up and stored in food in cities, large amounts of food stored in cities all over. He then leads the people to live beneath their means and to prepare in order to take care not only of themselves, but also to be able to take care of others. Let's now continue the journey, friends, as we walk with journey, uh, with Joseph, with this one who went from favorite son to slave to prisoner to second in Pharaoh's household. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine became severe throughout the world. God's word for us. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our and our minds, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, we come to you in humility. We have much to learn. So speak to us, enliven us, be our teacher, remind us of our identity as image bearers for the sake of one another and for the world we pray together. Amen. Anticipating that something may happen and actually experiencing it are two very different things. When my sister married my brother-in-law, Tim, they anticipated that they would have a difficult time getting pregnant. So it surprised all of us when pregnancy came easy for them the first time around. And then what they expected to happen happened and they stepped into a wilderness time of many years of infertility. It was a jarring transition for them to navigate from 
those easy, beautiful early years of marriage for them to a wilderness time. The seven years of plenty come to an end. The seven years of famine begin, just as Joseph said. The famine is severe. Joseph's plan of grain storage saves Egypt and makes it a center of relief for the whole Middle East. The Bible tells us that we will face suffering in times of trouble. But it isn't easy to navigate those when they come, even though we perhaps even anticipate that someday we might have some sort of difficulty. It's not easy to navigate a difficult transition. Yet our lives are filled with transitions. So learning to navigate transitions is a a big part of the life of a disciple. It's disorienting when we transition from a time of plenty to a time of want. When we transition from good health to a difficult diagnosis or chronic limitation. When we transition from days of peace to days of unrest. When we have the unwanted transition of no longer sharing life with someone we love beside us. When we transition from financial security to being underwater. When a door closes or a dream dies. So how do we stay faithful to God? and to each other when the going gets rough. The capacity to rise above circumstances was a central theme among a group of Christians that lived way back, making their mark in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. So we can learn from these early Christ followers and brothers and sisters in the faith. The desert fathers and mothers, as they came to be called, emerged as a countercultural movement at a time when the church started to earn the state's favor, rejecting the, the culture, the influences of the culture. They were the first Christian hermits who abandoned the cities to live in solitude in the desert. They worshiped God, they battled the devil, and they engaged in some pretty strict spiritual practices. They were odd and fanatical to be sure, but they also demonstrated sincerity of faith and devotion. These hermits of the third, fourth, and fifth centuries, intent on living in seclusion, they attracted surprisingly thousands of followers. So many, in fact, that one desert father observed that the desert had become like a city. Many stayed in the desert for a lifetime. Some stayed for simply a few months or maybe a few years, and then they would travel on their way and take with them the wisdom that they learned from the desert fathers and mothers to wherever they lived next. In his book, A Grace Revealed, Jerry Sitzer mentions one of the hermits by the name of Abba Theodore and how he used a particular word to describe disciples whose faith enabled them to transcend their circumstances. The word is ambidextrous, which we know describes a person who is equally adept with their right hand as they are with their left hand. In baseball, an ambidextrous person often functions as a switch hitter. One of our presidents, James Garfield, had the gift of being ambidextrous. 
He had the crazy ability of being able to write Latin with one hand and Greek with the other at the same time. Theodore applied the term to spiritual matters. Ambidextrous disciples, he said, learn to live for Christ in both prosperity and adversity. Theodore noted how God uses both prosperity and adversity to advance his purpose, purposes and to enlarge our capacity to love and to trust God. We prefer prosperity, right? Because it makes God seem good, the world seem right, and faith seem natural, as natural as writing with our dominant hand. Adversity does the opposite, making life hard for us. Still, ambidextrous Christians take both in stride, as Joseph did. Thus, thus, prosperity does not lead to carelessness, nor does adversity lead to despair. Someone who impacted my life greatly. I've shared about her before. And a true hero in my family story is my maternal grandmother. I think of her when I read the story of Joseph. Her siblings did not throw her into a pit, but her family did unknowingly throw her under a bus. Because my grandmother at the age of eight, she had lost both of her parents at that time, living in Scotland. And she was put on a ship to travel from Scotland to America to come to the new world, as my grandmother would call it, to the land of opportunity to live with distant relatives called the Hayes. She did not want to go. She's eight years old. She's lost her father. A few years later, she lost her mother. Leaving Scotland would mean being separated from the last person who meant the world to her, her baby brother. But her family, scraping together almost all the money that they had, seeing this as an amazing opportunity for my grandmother, thinking that this was a way to provide for her and care for her, they put her on a ship. What they didn't know at the time was that the reason those distant family members said yes to taking in my grandmother is because they wanted a servant. Slavery can take many forms. Grandma was treated very much like a Cinderella. She basically worked as a servant with very high expectations put upon her to improve the lives and to care for the needs of the two not-so-bright sons. She knew that she did not have all of the same or any of the same rights, privileges, benefits, opportunities that the two boys had. Eventually, she was offered a music scholarship at a small college in Maine, but the Hayes did not let her go. Grandma did not even realize that she had never been adopted or that she wasn't an American citizen until she was in her 20s and she tried to apply for a passport in order to go back to Scotland for the first time since being away to see her brother. She felt trapped, used, and knew she needed help, which eventually came in the form of my very determined grandfather when my 
grandmother was 27 years of age. My grandmother's life had a difficult beginning. And many trials came after that, after a season of wonderful prosperity, of, of marriage to my grandfather and the birth of four kids. There came a failed business venture for my grandfather and bankruptcy, a very difficult, scary trial with one of their, the health of one of their kids and ultimately the, the valley of dementia for my grandmother. Yet, regardless of life's circumstances, she was able to find abundance and blessing in the midst of famine and to ebb and to flow between prosperity and times of famine with grace. There was joy in her journey. My grandmother was an ambidextrous Christian. Late in her life, recalling those early losses, the journey from Scotland to America, her painful early years in this country, my grandmother remarked to us, the immediate is not what is important. What is important is to take the long view. Friends, the work of God, it is often hidden and imperceptible, difficult to see. It's easiest to see with the benefit of hindsight. We are more able to discern the loving hand of God more clearly, most clearly at work when we look back able to see the hand of God working and moving in our lives, able to see potentially the meaning and purpose for some of the circumstances and events that baffle us in the present. As some of you perhaps know, I began working on another degree last year. Not because I need a, another degree. <laughs> Ah, I hear you grow through pain and suffering, so I, I was looking for a way to grow. No, it's been, it has not been painful. It's not been a time of suffering. It's been delightful. But because of this, because of working on this degree, I am now in a required two-year journey with a mentor coach in company with a dozen of other students. During year one, here is the assignment. We're getting at this uh, in a variety of ways, but the whole first year is devoted to getting a handle on your personal story, for me to get a handle on my personal journey. This month, my assignment uh, will be to create a timeline. I know some of you who are engaged in lamplighters, you're doing a, a map. It's a similar thing, to engage in a timeline and to identify major markers in my life as a way of reflecting upon what in the world God may have been doing during particular times in my life, especially during times of transition. During my last phone call with my mentor coach, Terry said something that I am still sitting with. Here is what he remarked. He said, we tend to live situationally, but God calls us to live sovereignly. We tend to live situationally, but God calls us to live sovereignly. Friends, it's, it's that work of trying to get above your current circumstances and to try to, to get a bigger, broader view, to see the big picture, and then to be able to go back down and to be present in the given time, bringing with you a sovereign mindset. 
I love to fly, and part of why I love to fly is the view out the window. It accomplishes for me the same thing that happens when I stand on the edge of the ocean looking out into the vastness of the sea, being reminded that there is a much bigger world and a much bigger work, that what is happening in my life and in the lives of those around me is important to be sure, but it is all swallowed up and a part of a bigger story. Getting some altitude brings perspective. For me, practices like a half-day Lenten retreat, periodic journaling, spending time with the poor, and an annual retreat with a company of pastors provides for me some altitude. A sovereign mindset believes that there is an ultimate God-ordained purpose for our lives, whether seen or unseen. It believes that God is active, not passive or dormant. It's the belief that each life in God's economy is part of an ultimate and grand narrative. So how can we live as ambidextrous disciples? with a sovereign mindset, able to navigate times of transition between prosperity and adversity in our personal lives, within our families, within this congregation, and in our lives nationally. First, our attempts to follow Jesus every day, every normal mundane day that we follow Jesus, prepares for us to be able to be faithful in the more turbulent days. That is one thing we do. And we do this when we gather in worship. We do this as we gather with small pockets of people who know what's going on in our lives and in mission to the world as we engage and serve side by side. We encourage one another to follow Jesus every day in good times and in bad times. It's the first thing we do. And secondly, the practice I would like to encourage is the work of remembering. Part of understanding our journeys is being able to retrace our steps. We are instructed in Scripture habitually to look back on our journeys and to remember. To remember situations where we found ourselves in trouble and how we cried out to God for help and how the Lord heard our cries and answered and responded in God's time and in God's way with rescue and care. He did that for the Israelites time and time again, and friends, he will do that for us. So remember what God has done in the life of the world. Remember what God has done for us in Christ. Remember how God has been faithful and provided for you and for your family. Remember how God has been faithful to us and grown us covenant church through all our days, including during times of transition and trial. Remember how God has strengthened us, comforted us, healed us, renewed us. Remember how God made a way when there seemed to be no way. Remember how God has been faithful to the nations, including this nation and how he does some of his most important work during times of pain and transition. Remember how God cared for you through the generosity of others and how we now get to be generous and to care for others, including people from different nations who will come and ask for help in their time of need. 
This is the work of remembering. And as we recall God's intervention in our lives, as we remember where we have been and how we have been helped, we are compelled to say thank you. For memory is the soil in which gratitude grows. And we are compelled, I believe, to be less anxious because we remember the faithfulness and the character of God. Anxiety and despair are slowly cured by the faithful work of remembering. So friends, God is alive and moving in history, active in our world, active in our lives, in every season through all transitions. It's this confidence that causes hope to spring eternal within us. Remember God's faithfulness and tell stories to others of how God has been faithful in your life so we can help each other in the work of being faithful. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that no matter what we face in the world, that you are trustworthy and true. God, would you grow in us the ability to trust in your wisdom and in your plan? Would you help us to remember your faithfulness throughout time and give us the courage we need for the living of these days? We trust that you are Lord over the whole journey. God, ready us now to come to your table of grace. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.